And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to another edition of Atlantic and Coastal, the Athletics ACC podcast. I am Andy Bitter, the Virginia Tech football writer. For The Athletic here, your host of Atlantic and Coastal, we're wrapping up the basketball season here for the ACC. We have a Final Four, and the ACC is nowhere near it. (laughs) I think we all kind of saw that with the way the season was going this year, but it it played out uh, pretty much exactly how it was going to go. We're going to talk about that, Syracuse and Florida State. We'll talk about all the transfers uh, going on the ACC right now. We'll talk a little bit about the final four at the end. Joining us as usual, Brendan Marks, our UNC and Duke basketball writer. Brendan, how are you doing today? Doing all right. Doing all right. Doing a lot better than the ACC did in the NCAA tournament. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, it was ugly. Let's do the postmortem on the ACC in the right. tournament. Uh, this deal with these last two teams that lost this last weekend. Syracuse lost to Houston, uh, sixty-two to forty-six. Brutally ugly game. <laughs> Syracuse was never really in it. I think they got to four at one point in the second half, and then uh, Houston pulled away from uh, from them in that game. Uh, just wasn't the same orange team as the first couple rounds where they were hitting threes at a high rate, and the zone was causing problems. I, I don't think Houston. Uh, was like incredible offensively, uh, but they only had eight turnovers. Uh, you know, the previous couple games, Syracuse had been crazy on that. And Syracuse was 21% from three pointers. Buddy Beheim, one of nine. He had been uh, unconscious the first couple rounds. Uh, pretty brutal way for the Orange to end uh, their run here. It is, but at the same time, wasn't Syracuse lucky to be here all along? I mean, just to have that's been true. just to have been in this point. I mean, that's that's pretty pretty decent of a of a season for Jim Beheim to salvage here. But no, I mean, you mentioned how Syracuse just went cold, and and really, it was it was Buddy Beheim who went cold. You know, he's the reason that they were able to get to the point they were. I mean, him consistently dropping. 25 plus points. I, there wasn't a tournament game yet where he hadn't knocked down at least five threes, I believe. So, um, you know, he was really the guy that was propelling Syracuse on this run. And of course it helped that, uh, the zone was, was performing better than it had earlier in the season. It helped that he was getting some help from guys like Joe Girard and Merrick Dolzhai. Um, but at the same time, yeah, you know, you look at buddy 12 points, one and nine from three, just three of 13 overall, he got to the free throw line a decent amount, but, um, you know, the thing that was keeping Syracuse alive was him scoring at a supernova level. And once that went away, um, you know, Syracuse sort of succumbed to uh, the, the machine or the vacuum or whatever you want to call it. That is Houston's defense. And it is it is smothering. We've seen that on full display this last week here. Yeah, that seemed like everything was difficult for them offensively. Like nothing just felt comfortable the first couple games. They just were in a, a groove and the you know, things were flowing like that. And against Houston, it just got choked up and, and everything was hard. And when that's the case, uh, it gets very tough to get in a rhythm. It gets very tough to start shooting like that. Uh, I mean, you kind of touched on what do we make of this season 
for the orange. Uh, you know, got into the tournament, maybe higher seeded than a lot of people thought. I thought they might be a first four team like that. At a certain point this season, it didn't look like they would make the tournament. Uh, and then to make the Sweet 16 to be one of the last ACCTs standing. I mean, Sweet 16, you hear that for a basketball program, and you're probably really excited about that. You're like, yes, another Sweet 16. Uh, we we are first time for some of these schools. Uh, this is old hat for Syracuse. I mean, they make the Sweet 16 all the time uh, for a program that's won national championships before. Uh, is this just kind of ho-hum, another Sweet 16 season? Or if you're a Syracuse fan, do you, do you like, hey, this is encouraging or this was a, a really good season to go on? No, I think I think this is a season that Syracuse fans... I mean, listen, Syracuse fans expect to be competing for national championships. And while that hasn't been the standard for the last couple of years in Syracuse, that's still the, the fan expectation. And so I think that in some ways they'll look at this as a disappointment. But objectively from the outside, no. I mean, I see this making the Sweet 16, given where the Orange were in, say, you know, mid or early February. I mean, I remember we're talking about them. We're, we're not totally dismissing them, but, but you know, getting close to it. So I was. I was <laughs> totally dismissing them. I didn't even have them on my list of bubble teams one, on one podcast. I, and, I, near the end. It wasn't like middle of the season. It was near the end. Yeah. Andy, Andy comes in with his list every week. He's nowhere on it. But <laughs> I, I, I think that so when you think about where they were and the progress they made in the last month of the season. Yeah, I, I do think that this was a decent season for them. And, and just go back from from the beginning of March to now, the teams that they were able to beat, you know, they beat North Carolina in the end of the regular season, beat Clemson, beat NC State, hang right there with Virginia. Obviously, they they go on this little mini run here. I mean, I think that that's pretty encouraging, and especially if you can take this and now try and spin it forward. You know, something that I think we're going to see a lot more of is that that's going to be difficult for teams to do is to take that momentum from previous season and carry it over just because as we'll get to later, the, the the number of players moving, transferring, player movement is going to be at an all-time high this year. And so you're not necessarily going to have everyone from this Syracuse team back. They've already had three guys decide to enter the transfer portal. There will probably be more, as there will be at every school. So, But the, the big thing for Syracuse is you know at least two guys you're getting back. You're getting back at the very least Buddy Buckets and Joe Girard. That has already come out. And just from the tournament run that those two had, I, I do think that Syracuse fans have to be encouraged about where the program can get to next season. They've got a five-star prospect coming in and Benny Williams. Um, I, I do think that this can be something that Syracuse builds on a little bit. And, and you know, again, we'll see how all the, the roster movement shakes out, but at the same time, yeah, it, it is not what Syracuse fans may have wanted, um, but it certainly is probably more than they deserved. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting after the game, I saw some quotes from Bayheim sort of wrapping up the season and he just sort of like matter of factly puts it out there like, yeah, we're going to have some guys leave. <laughs> There's yeah. going to be a bunch of guys that leave. Like you're just straight up honest about it. It's well, like, that's yeah, not these, these coaches. know. I mean, it's not like they're blindsided by these decisions. So I, I think probably that's the smart move by Bayheim is to get out in front of me like, yeah, some guys are going to leave. We'll yeah, get you guys. We'll, it's we'll not, be fine. It's not a surprise at this point. I mean, I think honestly, at this point, it's almost like coaches are trying to like prep their fan bases like they're trying to educate their fans like hey you know yes oh great sweet 16 oh yes buddy buckets love it same time like don't get too attached to these guys because you don't know who's walking out the door so and and i think that that's something that coaches realize i think you know we in the college basketball media realize but certainly you know talking to to just casual basketball fans people who are not used to seeing this sort of thing um it, it's a little shocking. So that, that probably made a few more headlines than it deserves. But yeah, Syracuse, you know, there, there are some intriguing options out of Syracuse. We'll see how they shake out. 
I feel like we got the full Syracuse Orange uh, experience this year. A uh, team that kind of struggled midway through the year. Bayheim gets a little testy with the reporter. They turn it on near the end of the year, and then they make a tournament run, and we're back to where we started. We the checked world, every bingo box. <laughs> nature is healing after this crazy last year. It's good to see that. Uh, let's move on to the other ACC team that really was not competitive in the Sweet 16, Florida State. Uh, lost to top-seeded Michigan, 76 to 58. I think I have the score wrong on that one. Uh, when I wrote it down, I think it was a, a pretty wide margin there to finish that. Uh, this was not close either. It was 41 to 36 briefly early in the second half, and then it was never closer than that. I, I went back and looked at the the score back and forth. Florida State led 4 to 2, I believe, and then never again in that game. Uh, it's just sort of a flat performance by the Seminoles in this one. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, this is something that you and I had talked about in the weeks leading up to this t game was, you know, Florida State was certainly not playing its best basketball this time of year. I think we saw that in the ACC tournament where, you know, they struggled with North Carolina. We saw that in the championship game, obviously, where they lost to Georgia Tech. We saw that towards the end of the regular season, you know, letting letting a, a UNC team that got absolutely destroyed by Wisconsin come back from down 16 in the second half. I mean, that's that's unforgivable. So, yeah, I mean, this team was clearly not, I would say, at its peak performance throughout, you know, really most of March, if we're being honest. Um, and I just the, the thing that I couldn't help but think as I was watching, especially the end of that game. And no, I did not stick through to the entire end because, you know, I could see the writing on the wall, but uh, I couldn't stop thinking about how unfortunate it was that Leonard Hamilton didn't take the take the team he had last year to the tournament because it's really unfair. It's really unfair because that team I genuinely do believe was final final four caliber good at the very least potentially national championship uh, caliber good. And not to say that this year's team wasn't good. Obviously they were, if not for, you know, basically giving Virginia the ACC regular season tournament or title, um, they would, they would have had another regular season championship, but this was a team that offensively, um, there was never an alpha dog. There was never someone who could take over, and that's fine. Leonard Hamilton's teams have always thrived on their depth, thrived on their length, thrived on their athleticism. They make your life hell on defense. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, you do have to put the ball in the basket to win. And that was something that Florida State, for, for most of the last month of the season or so, um, could not do consistently. And so, yeah, I mean, Sweet 16 is not bad, but, but certainly I just couldn't help thinking, you know, where would this team have been last season? Yeah, they shoot 25% on three-pointers against Michigan. They were pretty bad at that all-tournament. I guess they were okay against Colorado, uh, but they did not make a three in that opener against UNC Greensboro. It was almost like it was a performance art or something like, well, like we can win this game without winning a three, making a three, <laughs> which is so weird because that team was uh, such a good three-point shooting team during the regular season, but this sort of was the Seminoles this year. They could look like world beaters one night and then come out the next, usually on the road or away from home and look like a completely different team with no identity or anything like that. I thought the thing in this game that was so interesting was that Michigan just pounded them down low. Uh, their first 30 points of the second half are from close range points in the paint, 50 to 28 uh, when you guys have guys that are all six, eight and, you know, uh, rim protectors like Kopervitsa and, and guys like that, you don't expect to see that against the Florida state team. I mean, that's what we talk about Florida state, like, Oh, athleticism and everything length. And, uh, you would think it would be tough to score around the paint. And it, apparently it wasn't for Michigan. Yeah. And, and I would add on there too, that if I, you know, if, if memory serves Raekwon, Raekwon Evans was, or Raekwon Evans, I think maybe no. 
Raekwon Gray. Raekwon Gray got in pretty significant foul trouble early in that yeah, game. Early he, on. Yeah, yeah, I think he got two in the first couple of minutes. He is one of their obviously best interior defenders. I mean, he's huge. He's he's got the the combo of size and just you know, bulk that makes him a really tough cover um, and makes him a really tough defensive assignment too. But no, yeah, I mean, this is a Florida State team that in the ACC, especially this year's ACC, as I'm sure we'll talk about, you could get by without athleting people. You could get by without physicaling people because I don't think... I don't think there really was a dominant physical team in the league this year. I don't think that there was any team when it was like, man, it is going to be miserable to play them as it has been in the past with a team like Virginia. I mean, you could score on Virginia a little bit this year as it has been with Duke. Obviously we know that didn't pan out even North Carolina with the size that North Carolina had got, got out rebounded by Wisconsin in the first round. So, um, I think that that's a formula that works really well. And, and ultimately, again, for me, it just comes back to the fact that this is a team that just wasn't playing great offensive basketball towards the end of the season. MJ Walker is supposed to be, I guess um, you would say that he's as close to an alpha score as they have 10 points, five of 14. I mean, that just doesn't get it done in the sweet 16. It doesn't get it done against a team like Michigan that, um, you know, despite them not being able to advance to the final four, still an incredible team, incredible season. Um, but yeah, I, again, I, I just keep thinking back to last season for Leonard Hamilton and that group and not getting to play it out because this year's Florida State team, while very, very good, um, was certainly not, in my eyes, as good as last year's. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. If you're a Seminoles fan, are you pleased with this season's result? Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to poo-poo a Sweet 16 appearance because, again, that's great. As one of the last 16 teams in the country, that's really great. But at a certain point in the middle of the season, we're like, oh, this Florida State team could be pretty good. And then they had a couple COVID bouts. And then, obviously, we mentioned at the end that the the offensive issues where they just couldn't put it together. But it just, at a certain point in the season, it felt like this team could do more. And maybe the finish to this was a little bit disappointing. Yeah, I would agree with that assessment. And also, you think, you know, ultimately this team is not walking away with anything. 
you know, because of that loss to Notre Dame, at the end of the regular season, you don't have a regular season title lose to, despite having one game to get there, you lose in the ACC tournament in the championship. So you don't get that title. And now obviously you're, you're not going to win the NCAA title. So this is a group that on paper, you know, if I told you in the middle of February that this team was going to end up with nothing to show for this season in terms of banners being hung, I think you would have been pretty shocked. Um, again, this is a team that didn't have a single first team, all ACC player, you know, Scotty Barnes wins freshman of the year, but uh, I mean, ultimately for what could have been for this team. Yeah. I, I think it's hard to look at it and not be a little underwhelmed. And, and that, listen, I say that because I, I value Florida state and, and they will say this new blood thing, Florida state belongs. Like we, we can stop pretending that Leonard Hamilton and Florida state don't belong. You know, when we're talking about the teams, they're going to be favorites when the ACC every year for the next four or five years, we're going to be talking about Duke and Carolina. We're going to be talking about Virginia and we're going to be talking about Florida state. I mean, they have officially entered that chat. They are there. Um, so I do think that when you look at it from that set of expectations, the fact that this was a team that last year, again, we will never know how far they could have gone. But um, in all of that context, I do think that you look at this team in this season and the fact that they're coming away empty handed. Um, Sweet 16 is fine, but it is something of a disappointment. It's something uh, it's something of an underwhelming season, I think. And um, that speaks to the growth that Florida State has seen under Lemel Hampton. But at the same time, it, it speaks to, you know, sort of how disappointing they were these last couple of weeks. Well, speaking of underwhelming, let's look at the ACC big picture. Here. <laughs> there you go. Get that zing uh, in, Andy. <laughs> ACC. Uh, these are our stats. I saw David Teal uh, of the Richmond Times Dispatch tweeting them out. Uh, he's basically the commissioner of the ACC. So these are accurate uh, stats that are coming out. ACC, four and seven in the NCAA tournament this year. The fewest wins uh, ever with more than one team in the tournament. Uh, fewest wins overall since the league went 0-2 in 1979. Uh, the ACC's first losing record in the NCAA tournament since 1987. Every other conference out there has had at least one losing NCAA tournament record in the 2000s. They have to go back to 1987 for the ACC. So I guess in that sense, it shows that how good the ACC has been for a long time, but it also shows just how bad of a year this was for the league overall. Uh, when we're looking back at this year on the ACC, what are we going to remember it for? For that exactly. We're going to remember this as the as the year without the ACC, sort of. I mean, not that I mean, obviously, all the games happen, but what does the ACC have to show? Nothing. I mean, not a single top three seed in the NCAA tournament. Your tournament champion uh, in terms of Georgia Tech loses their best player, loses their first game. Your regular season champion gets upset by a 13 seed in the first round. Your potential dark horse team in North Carolina gets absolutely stepped on in the first game. And you've got, you know, lowly seated Syracuse and 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 uh, an FSU team that can barely do offense, you know, sort of carrying the torch. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's any way to avoid the fact that this is an incredibly disappointing league year. Uh, maybe the most disappointing that we've seen in a couple of decades. And, and that sounds crazy to say, because I think we look back in the middle of the season. It was like, hey, man, Virginia's not bad. Florida State's not bad. Maybe North Carolina could even do something or Virginia Tech. And 
none of it came to fruition. I do, I do think it's important to note out here, Andy, and we talked about this too before the bracket even came out. Some of this was going to depend on how the bracket fell. You know, if, if a certain team got a certain break in the bracket, if they were facing certain matchups with different teams, for example, North Carolina with their size, if, if they're playing a non-Wisconsin team that does have that size and that veteran savvy, you know, maybe things are a little bit different. Same with Virginia Tech. I mean, uh, buzzer beaters, overtime. I mean, that's that's a lot to take in. But at the same time, yeah, I think that this season, it just goes to show that college basketball is changing and it's changing dramatically. And the ACC, for as good as it's been, for as long as it's been, is going to have to adapt to the way it's changing if it wants to continue to hold the same status that it traditionally and historically has. And I think it can, but certainly I think uh, continuing to run the status quo of what happened this season, it's it's not sustainable. Um, I don't expect to see it again, but certainly this is uh, one of the wilder, weirder, more disappointing years for the league that I can remember. Well, I think we all know the culprit in this whole thing, and that is football expansion in the hands of John Swafford. Oh, wait, no, I think John Feinstein might have put something in my notes here. Uh, no, uh, this was a weird year, uh, just in college basketball, period. I mean, Duke was terrible. Kentucky was terrible. I mean, all these great programs, historically, that you're like, okay, they're, they're going to be right there, and they're just not good, and they don't make the tournament in some cases. Uh is this a weird year or is this something is this more than that? I mean, is this going to be a blip on the radar for the ACC? Do you think they'll be back next year in some regard? Yeah, in some regard, but it's it's actually a really fascinating question, Andy, because yeah, you talk about some of those teams that historically were better and struggled and um, obviously, you know, it's been a weird season for everyone and I think, you know, in talking to the Duke players, you know, even before their season ended, you would say if we had not had to deal with all of the COVID-19 protocols, if we had been able to have a quote-unquote normal season, maybe things do look differently. Same thing at North Carolina. Um, and, and I'm sure the same could be said at multiple other places. I bet Georgia Tech would love to have had their first two games back this season. Um, so I do think that you have to take it all with something of a grain of salt. You have to acknowledge the fact that the COVID-19 protocols did affect the league. You know, Duke not having fans at Cameron Indoor – does make a difference. That is an advantage that is lost. Um, but at the same time, when you're looking at whether this is going to be a blip or not, it shouldn't be, right? It shouldn't be. The ACC should be able to do what it should. And I think that next year, you know, get your Duke jokes in now. We've said that because Duke's going to be back in the national title picture. Um, you know, there oh, we have gotten those jokes in. <laughs> Listeners of the podcast will know that we've gotten those jokes in. But Duke's going to be good next year again. Like they've got two top 10 recruits coming in. They've had a bunch of guys already come back. They're still very heavily in the running for five-star Trevor Keels, who's going to announce over the weekend. But at the same time, is is the overall league going to be back? I don't know. I, I think it'll be better than it was this year. I think you're not going to see this sort of uh, NCAA tournament ineptitude again. But at the same time, this offseason is going to be, and I say this without exaggeration, it's going to be unprecedented. It's going to be one of the craziest off seasons in all of college basketball history. Roy Williams called the one-time transfer rule, if it, the expected passage of it, the most significant piece of legislation in college basketball. And he's right. Coach K has said, this is going to be the wild, wild west. He's right. It's basically like college free agency. We've already seen that start to play out. Um, but because of that and because of how much roster movement and player movement we're going to see, whether it be the transfers, whether it be to the NBA draft, um, knowing that that elite high school players have other options outside of traditionally picking the schools in the ACC they would have, um, 
there, there's just a lot of things that make you pause before you proudly want to go out and declare, yes, the ACC will definitely be back next season. Well, let's talk about those transfers because, wow, there are a lot of them. Uh, I think we're past the point in the sports verbiage where we call things an epidemic these days. <laughs> we're maybe a little bit sensitive to we'll that We'll let you word. get it in again. You can get it in. Maybe, maybe you don't want to throw that word around too loosely after what we've been through over the last year in this whole thing. There's at least 10 ACC teams with multiple transfers in the portal right now. Uh, I think you were saying before we got on the podcast here, there's like over a thousand guys in the, in the transfer portal right now. Is that right? Already over a thousand fifty. Yeah. As of the time of us recording, it might hit 1100 by the time we're done. Oh yeah. I'm sure some major, major name for the ACC will go in there right after we're done. Recording. It has to, it has to. <laughs> it always happens. Here, here is, we have a, a list over at the athletic of the top uh, uncommitted high school prospects, I believe, and transfer guys that are out there. This is by Brian Bennett and Sam Vecini. Uh, these are the ACC guys. Uh, Walker Kessler of UNC. Four, he's number four on the list. Seven, Kadari Richmond, Syracuse. Nine, Earl Timberlake, Miami. 23, Jamin Brakefield, Duke. 29, Xavier Johnson, Pitt. 30, Chris Likes, Miami. Uh, 42, Adis Tony of Pitt. 44, C.J. Felder of BC. And 47, Jalen Cohn of Virginia Tech. Earlier, Jay Hurth of BC was number 39 on this list. Uh, that is a good portion of the list represented by just the ACC. Uh, and like I said, that was uncommitted high school prospects and, and stuff like that, too. So there's not just uh, college players on that list. I feel like that's uh, a very large number uh, for a power conference school like or, or a power conference like that. Um Walker Kessler is the, the highest ranked one on that list. Is he going to be the prize uh, for some team coming out of the ACC? Oh, 100%. And let me just add, by the way, that list, if you pooled all those guys together, that would be a really interesting team. That would be a lot yeah. of fun. <laughs> um, but no, yeah, Walker Kessler is going to be, you know, if not the most sought after transfer on the market, certainly in the top three. Um you know, you just look at his potential. You look at some of the flashes he showed for North Carolina. I mean, anyone who needs convincing as to Walker Kessler's abilities, go and turn on that Florida State game uh, from the middle of February at UNC. And he he was just a man, you know. He was a man against a man's team. So I, I think that, you know, again, that's just for now too, Andy. There are right. so many more names that are going to come out, so many more productive players. Um, I know a lot of them who who are in the process of putting their names in the portal right now at different schools. I mean, Jim Beheim's right. They, they're going to have more guys. UNC is going to have more guys. Duke might have more guys. Um, so, so it is crazy to think that this is, this is happening in the ACC, which doesn't traditionally see movement like this. But again, I, I cannot stress enough to our listeners that this is going to become something of the new normal for college basketball, assuming the one-time transfer rule is passed because players previously, if you wanted to sit, if you wanted to transfer, if you weren't happy at a place, you wanted to get out, you wanted to go somewhere new, you had that penalty of sitting out for a year. And, and that was prohibitive in terms of wanting to go somewhere else. Nobody wants to go and sit out. Nobody wants to waste a year of eligibility. And, and that rule now being changed, combined with the fact that everyone has an extra year of eligibility because of the COVID-19 pandemic, there is seemingly no barrier to guys leaving. If you are even a tiny, tiny little bit unhappy, why stay? Just go. The grass is greener, right? So you're going to see more names continue to come out, more productive players. A lot of those guys you mentioned, Andy, those were starters. You know, Earl Timberlake was thought of as a potential one and done in Miami. And, and if not for injuries, you know, he's a guy that could have been really, really exciting this year. So uh, 
I'd be interested to see how many of these guys end up staying in the ACC because the ACC has uh, gotten rid of its interconference transfer rule. Some of them I think might, uh, but at the same time, you know, Walker Kessler, guys like him, Jalen Cohn, Jamin Brakefield, Timberlake. These are guys that are going to go and they're going to be immediately productive somewhere else. And Kentucky has experienced this a little bit right now with Johnny Juzang and UCLA. Um, Sometimes you can do great things after you transfer. And sometimes the team that you leave ends up wondering what they had and, and what they didn't use. So uh, it's going to be crazy to continue to see how this plays out. But but I am certain, certain that by the end of the week, um, we will have more transfer news than we can even possibly attempt to get to in, in one pod. Of this early surge of transfers, which team is hurt the most by the departures so far? Well, I, I think that you can point to two in the ACC as of right now. I think one of them is pretty clearly North Carolina. Um, losing Walker Kessler in and of itself is debilitating. Uh, there's a reason he's the number four player on this list. If he had seen more playing time, I don't believe he would be in the portal. If he had perhaps seen a different role, I don't believe he'd be in the portal. But losing the number four available player is obviously going to hurt. And at the same time, you couple that with the fact that he is one of four big men who have now left UNC. So in addition to Walker Kessler, the Tar Heels have lost Daron Sharp to the NBA draft. They've lost Redshirt Jr., Sterling Manley, also to the portal. And now they, just as of this morning, have lost Walker Miller, um, walk-on big man. They've lost him as a graduate transfer. So you're talking about, of North Carolina's six bigs last year, four of them are already gone. The only two who have yet to announce their intentions one way or the other are Armando Baycott and Garrison Brooks. Um and, you know, in theory, both those guys can still leave. And if that happens, then, oh, my God, we're, we're we got a lot to talk about. Um, at the same time, the other school that I would look to and say they're really hurting is Syracuse. You know, Kadari Richmond is, is what did you say? He's number seven on that list, Andy. Yeah. So, you know, he is a tremendous prospect. He was Syracuse's only top 100 guy on the roster. I do not believe he'll be the only player to enter the portal out of Syracuse. I believe they've got some more coming in in the next couple of days. Um but he is an incredibly intriguing point guard prospect. He's got like this crazy long 6'10 wingspan, not a tremendous shooter, but Syracuse was so much better with him on the floor. Defensively, what he brings was fourth in the ACC in steals per game. I think he averaged like 1.6 steals per game. Um, he's just a long, physical, athletic defender who needs to continue working on that perimeter shot. But as that comes along, I mean, this is a guy who's immediately going to come in and can start at a number of high major programs. So um, I would say that that Syracuse and North Carolina right now are probably hurting the most. Um, but I, again, I think there's still more decisions to come from a lot of these schools. And, and as those play out, uh, you know, there are going to be other schools that are hurting and looking for guys as well. I think it's important to remember that the portal goes both ways. Absolutely. And, and we're at the phase right now where you're just seeing people leave. And I think a lot of fans see that, oh, people are leaving. This, this, how are you ever going to replace them? It's like, well, UNC and Syracuse are pretty attractive schools. I think they'll, they'll be on the list for some of these guys coming in from other places. So, uh, I've seen this in Virginia Tech with football where a bunch of guys always leave after the season and then they get some guys in the offseason and, uh, you know, historically here, I mean, Khalil Herbert last year was... Yeah, that worked out pretty in. well, didn't it? <laughs> he was incredible. You know, Brock Hoffman was their starting center. I mean, they've had a history... Uh, of good uh, transfers coming in here. So I think in the in the end, I mean, you know, you see all the headlines up front that this guy's leaving, this guy's leaving, because you're, you're familiar with these guys through the recruiting process for so many years. And in some of these cases, they're really touted guys uh, that are moving on. That people are like, oh my gosh, the sky is falling. What are we going to do? And then by the time you see the roster the next year, you're like, oh, things are okay. You brought some talent in. 
I'm curious what you think about that. I'm not going to speak uh, negatively about this new rule that uh, you know is kind of facilitating some of this movement or this soon-to-be rule. I guess it hasn't technically passed yet. Right. Uh, I think this is a good thing for players that they can move like this. It's an interesting result that it is so many uh, players transferring. But, I mean, if you're going to say these guys are real students, I mean, how many real students transfer after their first year of college? It's, it's an incredibly high number. I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I, I think if you look at that, you look at what's happening in college basketball, it's maybe not that uh, out of alignment with what the regular numbers are. Uh, I'm curious, I mean, how do you adjust to this if you're a coach? Uh, how do you, do you have to uh, change your pitch to these players and be more realistic in the, when, in the recruitment of these guys? Do you have to give them more of a taste early on when they're playing here? How do you keep everybody satisfied or do you just not worry about it and just say, Hey, guys are going to leave and new guys will come in. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I think it's probably more of the latter. I don't think that there is a situation where, because again, you know, what, what we, what we previously saw was that there was a barrier to leaving. So if a guy potentially wasn't seeing the playing time he liked, wasn't seeing the role that he liked, wasn't, you know, being treated the way that he thought he deserved to be treated, but maybe he loves campus. Maybe he loves his major. Maybe he has, you know, a significant other. Maybe, you know, there are, there are any number of reasons why guys ultimately stay. And and baked into that was also this, this problem where if you left, you had to sit out. You lost. You lost out on something. Um, that's not going to be the case anymore. And so I, I do think that to some extent, this is just going to be more of the new normal. You know, there is no such thing as a college basketball team where everybody's happy. These are all guys, especially at the, the ACC level, these were all guys who in their high schools, in their towns, they were the dude. They were the alpha. They were the number one. They were, uh, you know, the hot shot. These, these were the guys that everybody wanted to see. Everybody knew their name. And at college, that's not the same case because there are other good players that you have to play with and play around. So I do think that we're going to continue to see this. I don't think there's a way for coaches to really appease everyone. Now, I do think that their pitches will change somewhat. I think that in terms of when you're recruiting, at least, this is going to create a mess for coaches. It already has because players, especially knowing that the draft is going to be in July now, players have such a long time to potentially declare and, and then come back to school. It's going to create headaches in terms of roster management because you don't know if a guy is going to stay and if he if he ultimately stays well now you need a replacement for him and if he doesn't well you're you're banking on that and you're not taking in other guys because you're banking on this guy coming back so it really does create a problem for coaches it's going to be much harder for them and at the same time you know who loses out in this whole process andy it's high school recruits because their value inherently diminishes if i am jim Beheim and i'm looking to replace kadari richmond and I have the option to go and take another high schooler and I'm going to have to get him in shape. I'm going to have to teach him my zone. He's going to be automatically playing behind Buddy Beham and Joe Girard. Do I want to take another high schooler who's going to do that? Or do I want to take a guy who maybe already has a year or two of college experience, is already there physically in terms of conditioning, already has some idea of, of what a college or high, high major level work ethic has to be and just needs some work on the zone. That second option suddenly looks a lot more attractive. So some of those fringe high school guys to me are the ones who are going to lose out in this process as well. Um, but no, I mean, ultimately this is just going to change the way that, that college basketball coaches do business. It's going to change the way that recruiting works. Um, I mean, I really cannot say enough about the impact that 
this rule, this season, this off season is going to have um, for next year, for the summer, and, and really, truly for years to come as well? Well, it's going to be crazy this year. I, I think, uh, as is usually the case, things will settle down. People will adapt. Life will move on. It seems like the end of the world right now, but five years from now, this will just be the way that business is done. Right. And people will not uh, think too much of it. I think uh, certainly this original case is this bloated transfer portal. Uh, I think a lot of guys will not have chairs at the end when the yep. music has stopped playing and that future players in future years might look at that and go, hey, maybe my situation is not so bad that I want to give up this guaranteed scholarship that I have right now. Uh, and go searching for somewhere else. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it's an interesting offseason. It'll be fascinating to see how this all plays out. I think the coaches that adapt to it the best and don't like fight it because it's happening whether they want it to or not, uh, those will be the ones that succeed the most uh, sort of in the new world order on how this thing is going. Uh, I wanted to talk about the Final Four. Uh, this is our last uh, basketball-only podcast that we're doing here on Atlantic and Coastal. Uh, so let's talk about the rest of the Final Four because it's an interesting Final Four, I think. Gonzaga, it will play UCLA. Both those teams won yesterday. Baylor will play Utah. Uh, let's just be honest. Houston. Houston. Or, I'm sorry, Baylor versus Houston. I wrote down Utah. Yeah. Uh, let's be honest here. Don't screw this up for us, UCLA and Houston. Everybody in the world wants to see Baylor and Gonzaga. I don't even, I, I'm calling Houston, Utah. I don't even want to care who's in the final <laughs> four here. I want to see Gonzaga and Baylor and nobody else. Please just don't screw this up for us at this point, right? Yeah, I mean, when so this game was supposed to happen back, I think, on December 5th, maybe December 6th, something like that. And it didn't happen, gets, gets ultimately pushed back. We deserve it. For this college season, for all that we have gone through, for all that uh, these players, these coaches, everyone has gone through, we deserve to see the two best teams in the country play. And I think it's pretty clear, especially watching the way that this tournament has played out, that at their at their best, I still don't believe that anybody can touch Gonzaga. Um, but when Gonzaga is not at its best and Baylor is, then then certainly the Bears are a really interesting, tough. Uh, it's not a team that I would want to play. You know, so I I think that. This is going to be a really interesting Final Four, Andy. I mean, Houston does not want to go down lightly. Kelvin Sampson's a good coach. Their defense is their defense versus Baylor's defense. I don't know if anyone's even going to be able to score the ball. Um, and UCLA, UCLA is playing with house money at this point. So, uh, no, I, I mean, ultimately, I would love to see a Gonzaga versus Baylor championship. I think most of us would. Um, but at the same time, there is that little devil on my shoulder that keeps saying to me, Maybe you do want to see an 11 seed win it all. Maybe you do, Brendan. No, you don't. <laughs> Admit it. This, this is that's the ideal NCAA tournament setup. You want to have upsets early, but you want to have all the great teams there late. That is sort of like the you know the thing that people don't talk about a whole ton is like when there's a ton of upsets and like you know George Mason makes the Final Four and everybody's like oh remember that year George Mason made the Final Four? It's like well if I remember right that was a pretty lousy Final Four. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think you want to see those teams there at the end. You want to see the you know two best teams in the country, Gonzaga and, and Baylor, going up against each other. Uh, UCLA, I mean, it's a great story. Eleven seed getting through there. I had them losing to Michigan State. I, I didn't think you and Michigan you State and many other people in the first four. Uh, it just they're going to slow it. Try to slow it down. I just. Can you slow down Gonzaga? I mean, nobody's been. Everybody talked about USC last week, and they're like, "Oh man, Gonzaga's never seen size like this. They haven't seen an interior defense like this. What are they going to do?" 
and Gonzaga just carved him up. I mean, it wasn't even like they were just bombing threes and hitting from outside. They were just like backdoor cutting. And I mean, it was just like a clinic they were putting on offensively. Yeah. Drew Timmy, uh, we're going to give final four most outstanding player if Gonzaga wins it all to a dude with a giant handlebar mustache starting his first year. I mean, that thing is glorious. I love it when he scores. He like kind of like finesses it, like points to the sky. The Fu Manchu. It's fantastic. I absolutely love it. Um, it's like but, he's an evil character. He's like twirling his mustache after scoring it. It's like, yeah, that's right. Lean into it. I love it. Exactly. But he's, he's I, from what I understand, he's a very nice guy. Um, so it doesn't totally fit, but he, yeah, I mean like, what are you going to do to stop Gonzaga? And and listen, UCLA has been playing lights out. I mean, you look at some of the guys they have, just the pieces. I mean, on paper, on paper, I think this game will probably be more interesting than we think it is. Um, you know, you're, you're talking about a guy, and Tiger Campbell's an interesting point guard. You know, he seems to make the right decisions. He's very crafty around the rim. You know, Johnny Juzang, the only player in UCLA history with more points in their first five NCAA tournament games than Johnny Juzang is Kareem. So I would say that's pretty good. That's Lou Alcinder, you mean? Yes. More. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. To be to be more factual, uh, Jaquez is you know the stretch for capable of getting his own shot, capable of shooting, capable of driving, and then Riley is you know back to the basket big man. And and the fact that they were able to beat Michigan, even with him in foul trouble, even not having him down the stretch, I thought was really really impressive. Um, but no, I mean Gonzaga's a machine. They step on anyone's throat who comes near them. Um, and here's the thing, right? Gonzaga could play a god-awful half. They could go into half down 10 against UCLA, and I'd still think they're going to win by 10 because it, it can be so many different guys that hurt you. Um, you know, maybe it is Drew Timmy. Maybe it's Jalen Suggs. Maybe it's Joel Ajayi. You know, maybe it's Corey Kispert. Uh, you know, some games, it's even Andrew Nebhart. So, I mean, this is a team that is just so deep. They have so many guys that can beat you one-on-one. And defensively, when you're talking about Suggs and you're talking about Ajayi, and you're talking about Nebhart, that is three of the best on-ball defenders in the country. And, and they are just going to hound you. They're going to steal the ball, and they're going to immediately turn it into transition offense. So, um, again, would I love to see Gonzaga Baylor? Yeah, of course I would. Would I love to see UCLA, an 11 seed that probably didn't belong, make Gonzaga sweat? I wouldn't hate to see that either. I, I won't mind if it doesn't turn into the wrestling match that that Michigan game did uh, last night. I'm not going to complain because it was profitable on my under bet. But yeah. uh, was, <laughs> hey, I've been on a streak lately. Eight straight. Eight straight. Wow. Winners. Look at uh, you. We're going to call it the elite eight here in the NCAA tournament. It was pretty brutal in the early going, but I've, I've been on a bit of a heater here. Uh, the other semifinal game, Houston has to feel sort of fortunate to be where they are. I mean, they, they should have lost to Rutgers probably uh, in that second round game. They've beaten a 10 and 11, a 12 and a 15 seed to get here. Like, I know you play the schedule in front of you, but there still seems to be something slightly flukish about their run here. I don't want to say that because they're a good team, but it's like, yeah, hey, you still haven't seen them go up against a team. I mean, no, obviously, they haven't seen a team like Baylor or played a team like Baylor. I'm curious how, you know, they, they rely on that sort of smothering defense. I mean, Baylor is just a different level of athlete than oh. what they've seen in this tournament. I'm curious if what they do is going to be as effective against a team like the Bears. 
Um, I'll be, I'll be interested to see that too. You know, both these teams are great defensively. I do think it's interesting in Houston's case, the Dwayne Wade rule stays alive. If you uh, are a ranked team and you lose to East Carolina in the regular season, you're destined to make the final four Marquette uh, with Dwayne Wade was the last team to do that. But I was going to say, has that <laughs> happened like once? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very, very obscure. Um, you know, local radio guy, Joe Gillio put that out, but yeah, I, I think that Houston, you do play the schedule that's in front of you. And also, you know, Houston's regular season is what earned them this path. You know, that's why you play the whole season to get to this point. It's to create as advantageous a journey for yourself as possible. And Houston taking advantage of that. I will say this, you know, for as good as Houston's defense is, Baylor's defense is elite, you know, elite. And Mitchell, Butler, Teague, you know, all these different guys, they're so tough to get by one-on-one. I'm just not sure that Houston has the offensive players that they need to, to score enough in this game. Um, sort of reminds me a little bit of like Florida state, like defensively. Yeah. I think they can hang, but I'm just not sure they can put the ball in the basket enough. And, and maybe that's wrong. You know, they've, uh, Quentin Grimes been playing really inspired lately. Uh, but at the same time, that's not against a team like Baylor. And I, we were worried about Baylor going into this tournament, right? Because they had not looked great after their COVID pause. They weren't defending at the same level. Baylor's back. They're back at that level. Scott drew got them back. And yeah, now at this point we, we do deserve, you know, to see, but, but, but who cares what we deserve? What we deserve hasn't played out all season. So why do we have any reason to believe it will now? We deserve it now though. I'm not going to ask you about your semifinal picks because we're only going to talk about Gonzaga versus Baylor in the final, because we're going to will it to happen here. I like this podcast. Uh, who you got in that game? I got Gonzaga. I've had Gonzaga for weeks. I had them winning every single bracket that, that I filled out. I think that they are, not just the best team in college basketball this season. I think they're historically great program. Um, they're the first team ever with five straight 30 win seasons. Um, it's crazy to think this is Mark Few's second final four, like for how as good as they've been, that seems like an absurd, you know, I don't know how that's possible, but yeah, I mean, offensively, I just don't think there's a team that can run with the Zags. Like I said, even if they have a bad half, as they did uh, against BYU, I believe in the in the West Coast in the WCC championship game. Yeah, they came storming back in that one too. That's yeah, they just put their foot on the gas and go. And again, when you're just looking up and down the roster, I'm not sure that Baylor has a guy that matches up well with your Timmy. He's playing as well as anyone in the country right now. I do think that if they win, he's got a really good case to be MOP, uh, most outstanding player. But, you know, Baylor's going to make it a game. But no, I, I think that Gonzaga has been the best team by far in the country all year. There's a reason they're undefeated. And in this crazy, weird year with the most upsets in NCAA tournament history, um, it would only be fitting to see our first undefeated team in, you know, decades and decades and for it to be a team that has never won a national championship before. It's it's crazy, be- but I, I, I just I, I want to see it. I really want to see it. That'd be check off so many boxes if Gonzaga were to win. I, I'm picking Gonzaga too. I'm, I'm a believer now after watching them through this tournament. But like undefeated season hasn't happened in four decades. Uh, small conference team winning it, crashing the party in a sense. Gonzaga getting over the hump. I mean, there's just so many things that this could check off. I'd, I'd ask you if they completed the undefeated season. Uh, I know they play in the conference they play in, but would that put them among the all-time greats? 
100%. And and let me just, you know, get this out of the way right off the bat. The argument that they haven't played anyone is a complete fallacy. That's a garbage argument. I don't care that the WCC isn't as good as some of these other power conferences. This year, here's who the Zags have played. Played Kansas in the opener, one by 12. Played Auburn, blew the socks off. Beat West Virginia, beat Iowa, beat regular Virginia. We remember that game, 23-point blowout. Um, beat BYU multiple different times, beat St. Mary's, and now in the tournament, uh, just embarrassed USC, beat Oklahoma. I mean, this is Creighton. It was never, none of these games have been close. You know, this team has by far and away been the best team in the country all year. They belong among the all-time greats, even if they don't win the tournament. I mean, let, if, if let's say in theory, UCLA pulls the upset of all upsets. I mean, that would be one of the biggest tournament upsets in history. Um, this team would, instead of being talked about as the best team to ever, you know, one of the best teams to ever win the title, we'd be talking about it in the same vein as 2015 Kentucky, 38-0, didn't get the job done at the end. But, but I mean, they are already at that level of historical greatness. At this point, anything they can lop onto the end of it is, is just gravy in my book. Well, that's a good way to end this, uh, talking about greatness, not from the ACC, but from another team, <laughs> from another conference <laughs> that has a pretty good chance of winning the national championship. Uh, this was a fun one. This was a fun podcast to do over the winter here. Thank you to everybody uh, who joined us uh, for this little ride here talking about ACC hoops. We'll transition this back into ACC uh, football coming up. I'm not quite sure the schedule, how we're going to do it, but uh, this will be a little bit more of an off-season football type podcast uh, going forward right now. Uh, if you haven't yet, go rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts, and subscribe to The Athletic. It's $1 to subscribe right now. I think that goes through the start of April still, so go get that done now. If you haven't done that, $1 is all it takes to subscribe uh, right now. Go to theathletic.com slash Pod. Find your stuff there. Uh, follow us on Twitter. I'm at AndyBitterVT. He's at Brendan R. Marks. Thank you again to everybody for listening to us, and we hope you listen to us when we transition this back into football.